It's time to take your seat in the front row with Mike Vaccaro. Here's your host, Mike Vaccaro. Hey, thank you, Chuck, and welcome, everybody. Mike Vaccaro once again with you in the front row. Behind the scenes, as always, is J.R. Quitman, our creator, producer, director. And this, again, is a CLNS Media Network podcast. Episode 50 upon us, and we cannot be here without you. Our viewers, our listeners, we thank you for watching, for subscribing, for supporting as well. It's been a fun year plus to get to this point, and uh, certainly more great guests coming up, including today's guest, our 50th guest. It is Tom House. Who's Tom House? Well, he's the father of modern pitching mechanics, but so much more than that, pitched in Major League Baseball. So many Forrest Gump moments. He caught the home run from Hank Aaron, home run number 715 to break Babe Ruth's record. He also was a pitching coach for the Texas Rangers when Nolan Ryan was there pitching a couple of no-hitters. And he's also worked with a lot of NFL quarterbacks as well, starting with Drew Brees. So many moments, so many big names. You don't want to miss this episode. A great episode with the great Tom House. Episode number 50 in the front row with Mike DeCaro. Um, Tom, first of all, uh, I appreciate you joining us here today. Again, uh, you've been called the, the, the father of modern pitching mechanics. We're going to get to that a little bit later on, but we want to talk about your story, how you got to that point. And, and for you, you, you were born in Seattle, but you played high school in California. When, when did that transition go uh, for you? You've done your homework. That's, that's good. Yeah, I was born in Seattle. We moved to Portland, Oregon when I was about five, and we lived there until my freshman year in high school. And then my dad's job took him down to the L.A. area, and that's when we moved to Southern California, my freshman year in high school, 1961 or 62. Was baseball always at the forefront of your mind as far as the athletics were concerned? Pretty much. Uh, I played all sports. Like uh, the, the generation, my generation, didn't specialize. So depending on the season, uh, I played football, basketball, baseball, uh, whatever sport was in vogue, and we took it from there. You're not alone, as you said. We've interviewed a lot of people. It's the same way. They played everything. And sometimes a sport that they didn't excel in professionally, they thought was their better sport. Is there one that you had that maybe was better that you thought than baseball? I think the scouting report on me, I was equally marginal in all sports. But the one thing I did, I'm left-handed, and I was able to throw a curveball for a strike. So that really helped me in the high school and actually college realm. And because I put up really good numbers, uh, I, I think w without bragging, I only lost two games in four years in high school. And I was a pretty good student because my mom made my brother and me get A's or we didn't get to play any sport. So I was drafted by the Cubs uh, didn't really get enough to, to merit signing. So I went to USC and got to play with uh, Tom Seaver and Billy Lee and Dave Kingman, which was a really, really good team. I think 15 of the 25 guys on that roster actually ended up playing in the big leagues. So they came, they came to watch Tom Seaver and they got a glimpse of me on occasion. And that was enough to get me signed by the Braves. Yeah, this was in the 60s. You, you played for Rod Dato, a legendary yes. head coach at USC. What was the recruitment process like back in the 60s to get you to USC? Well, um, the, all those 
you know, really, really famous coaches were really good in the living room. I can remember I was being recruited by Arizona State. I thought I was going to end up going to Arizona State to play with Reggie Jackson and Sal Bando. Probably just, those names don't mean anything to the kids today. But uh, Rod, Rod Dato came to my house, sat down in the living room, uh, did his pitch. And when he left, my mom said, uh, I don't know much about that man, but that you're going to you're going to go play for him. And it turned out to be one of the best things that's ever happened to me because Rod actually mentored me, made me aware of the importance of advanced education and degrees. And he told me, can I tell you a quick story here real quick? Sure. All right. So I'm throwing my first bullpen at USC. You know, I only lost two games in high school, and I'm thinking I'm going to be the cat's meow. Well, the guy throwing next to me is this man-child that is throwing harder than I've ever seen anybody in my life. And Coach Jato comes up and puts his hands on my shoulder and said, Tommy House, what do you think of young Tom Seaver? And I said, Rod, I don't know, but if you need me to throw like that, you got the wrong left-hander. <laughs> and he said, no, 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 no. Uh, I don't want you to be Tom Seaver. I want you to be the best you that you can be. Throw your curveball, hold runners close, be a left-hander that can throw some strikes, and you'll both win games here at USC. So Rod, first bullpen, took all the pressure of having to throw hard off of me, uh, allowed me to throw a curveball, which was my main pitch. And probably if I had gone over to Arizona State, they would have expected me to throw hard like one of their guys. So I, I got lucky. I've always, I think, as I look back, um, I, I think they're calling me also, beside the, the, the father of modern pitch mechanics, I think they're calling me the Forrest Gump of sports because I always kind of seem to be where the good stuff is happening. Yeah, we're going to get to some of that good stuff uh, throughout the course of this interview. Uh, again, big names that you've been tied to in your career, your playing career. So you, you said you, you were drafted by the Cubs 11th round in 1965. That's pretty high. Why did you pass on that opportunity? Well, I, I don't know if I made it clear early on. My, my mom was, she was an Iowa farm girl with barely a high school diploma. And her number one priority was to have her boys get a college education. So literally, we, if, unless we got A's in all our classes, she wouldn't let us play sports. Wow. So she, early on, she made us aware of the value of education and the expectations were really high. And because of that, uh, the, the money from the Cubs wasn't enough to pull me away from a scholarship at USC. Yeah, I would think, again, back in the 60s, not quite there. In 67, you're drafted again, 48th pick in the secondary phase by the Braves. Tell us about that moment and what that was like for you. Well, that was pretty exciting, and what what made it bearable or made it acceptable, uh, I went to Coach Dato and I said, Rod, I, I would very much like to sign. I, I think I've proven myself on the collegiate level. I, I, I Between summer ball and two years on the varsity at USC, I won like 35 ball games, and I didn't feel like going back for another year uh, of college ball would, would be any more beneficial than signing and going to play. And what Rod made me do, he said, okay, I'll give my blessing if you, if you want to sign professionally, but I promised your mother that you'd get degrees. So please ask when you, you do, when you do your negotiation, 
uh, ask for your education. And I just took a shot at it. So I asked for my education through my PhD program. And that kind of made it good with everybody. My mom, Coach Jado, and myself. And I actually went to school till I was 44. And I, I think I'm, if not the only, I'm, I'm one of two Trojan uh, athletes from the baseball program that have got, got their PhD. So my mom's up in heaven smiling at me right now, which is a good thing. Yeah, she obviously had a great influence on, on a lot of decisions. You, you did get a PhD in sports psychology of uh, all careers, which uh, all degrees, which certainly had to help you out in your career later on as well as a sports psychologist. I think all the coaches need that psychology degree these days. But, you know, again, you get drafted by uh, the Braves. Took you four years to make your, your MLB debut. You finally did that in, in 1971. What were the years like heading into that debut in MLB? Well, it was interesting. I, you know, I had never really experienced failure as, as a pitcher in the amateur level. And um, it, I went, I, I signed, I spent like two weeks in A ball, two weeks in double A, and then went right to triple A. And in retrospect, it was too much too soon. So I stunk it up pretty good for a couple years. And then another guy turned out to be a really, really strong mentor for me, a, a man named Clyde King, who was our, our manager in Richmond, Virginia. And again, I was I was stinking it up pretty bad. And he said, Tom, let's go for a walk. And you know when the your pitching coach or your your manager ever asks you to go for a walk, it, it can't be all that good. So I was expecting to get demoted to double A or maybe even released. And he sat me down and he said, Tom, do you know what your ERA is the first time through the lineup? I had I had no clue. He said it's right around two, two and some change. And I said, okay, well, maybe this isn't going to be too bad. Then he said, what's your ERA second time through the lineup? And I didn't know that either, and I told him so. And he said, well, it's about 465 to 5. Now I'm really getting nervous because uh, I wasn't quite sure what it was going to do. So I said, well, what, what's, what are we going to do? He said, what do you think I should do, we should do? And I said, coach, I really don't know. He said, well, what I'm going to do let me, let me take a step back. He asked me one more question. What's your ERA third time through the lineup? And uh, I could answer that one because I never got three times through the lineup. <laughs> and that's when he said, well, what are we going to do with you? And I said, I don't know. You tell me. He said, well, I'm going to put you in three or four ball games a week and not let you throw more than one time through the lineup. And that was 1971. That was my first you know, cup of coffee in the big leagues. So Rod Dato on the collegiate level, Clyde King on the pro level, uh, someone was always there to aim me in the right direction. He was an analytics guy before anybody even knew what analytics were. So you see how lucky I've been? I was going to say, that's early analytics that, that maybe saved your career, found your role, uh, as you said, was as a relief pitcher. So you make your debut June 23rd, 1971. You know who, who it was against? Do you remember that debut for you? I think it was against Montreal, and I think the hitter I faced first was a guy named Boots Day. And I had just faced him two weeks earlier in AAA and struck him out with the bases loaded. He hit a double off the wall. I can't even I, – I don't remember what the pitch was or whatever, but I'm thinking to myself, this big league stuff may be a little tougher than it looks. 
Yeah, two hits, one run in, in a loss there. Not on you, but uh, it was against the Expos. Again, uh, June 23rd, 1971. But uh, you had some great years, 74 and 75 with the Braves, maybe some of your, your best seasons. What do you remember about that time uh, with the Braves? Well, as luck would have it, the, um, the, there's no, if, if I was to give a scouting report on myself, I'm a 10th, 11th guy on a 10-man pitching staff, I mean, realistically. And as luck would have it, uh, those two years with the Braves, they didn't have much in the bullpen. Our closer was a guy named Danny Frisella, and he was real good, but he got hurt. And then uh, the other guys that were in line to be closers or setup guys weren't doing really well. So they plugged me in in the early part of 1974. And that literally I was kind of in the zone that, that whole summer. And I think, I don't know if we were going to go this way, but I think the reason I was in the zone was that was the, the, the summer that I caught Henry Aaron's 715th home run in the bullpen in Atlanta. And I think that kind of gave me um, the momentum or whatever it was to feel really good about myself. And it carried over through that whole 1974 season. Yeah, you're talking about Forrest Gump moments. I was going to get to that. You caught the home run that broke Babe Ruth's record in the bullpen. Uh, yeah. Tell us about that moment. Take us through that and, and, and maybe when you thought you had a chance to catch that. Well, I'm going to give you a compliment. You guys have really done your homework here. I, I got to pal around with you more often. You're dusting off some cobwebs that are all good memories. But what it boiled down to, uh, he, Henry had been chasing the record in 1973. And uh, in fact, they thought that he might break it in Cincinnati uh, leading into the 74 season. But as it turned out, we made it back to Atlanta and it was a Monday night game. And uh, what we had done with all the guys in the bullpen, we kind of had uh, the option uh, to, of picking out what territory behind the left field fence that we wanted to cover. And a little side story that may or may not be out there. I, I had thrown a lot of batting practice to Hank one-on-one uh, -on -one because he had, uh, he had issues with a lefty that threw screwballs, which is what I did. So I, I knew for a fact that fastballs away, he would hit home runs, but he wouldn't pull them right down the line like he did everything else. So I, I took a space out in left center, um, thinking that, uh, okay, Al Downing is pitching for the Dodgers. He's left-handed, and he's not going to give Henry anything to pull. So maybe I might get lucky if I'm hanging in left center because that's where he hits most of the home runs and batting practice off of me. And as luck would have it or divine ordinance or whatever it is, uh, the ball came right to me. If I would have stood still, it would have hit me in the forehead. Everybody talks about what a great catch it was. It wasn't a great catch. It just was hit. And all I can remember is, oh, my God, it's coming to me. And then the next thing I, I was consciously aware of, complete him the ball. Yeah, you, you ran and gave him the ball right away. I'm assuming that ball's in the Hall of Fame, or, or, or did he still have it? I think he, uh, he lends it to the Hall of Fame every year during the induction ceremonies and whatever, but I think he's in possession of the ball. Uh, and, you know, that the, the good news 
Let's do it this way. The, the good news about that, that was the highlight of my major league career. The, the bad news, that was the highlight of my major league career. I was kind of like sort of, okay, 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 really, really good. Okay, okay, okay. So I got almost nine years in the big leagues, which for me was an absolute thrill in retrospect. And, you know, I always loved the game, but realized as my playing career was winding down, that I might enjoy being a coach and that the passion for the game itself led to the ignition of me wanting to be a, a, a coach at, at, in the pro level. And that's what I committed to. Well, you're not giving yourself enough credit. 1.93 ERA there in 74, logged over 100 innings. So again, good career there, 74, 75. You did get traded in December of 75 to the, the Red Sox. So you had to deal with being traded for the first time. What was that like for you? As you said, you know, dealt with some failure before in the minor league level. It's all about failure when you talk about the game of baseball. What was being traded like? Well, being traded to the Red Sox was unique because the Red Sox has this unbelievable tradition of winning. The, the Braves obviously were a second division ball club the whole time I was with them. Uh, and right up until I left, they were a second division ball club, which may be a statement on, on me. But um, went, to the, went to the Red Sox, and I knew immediately walking into that clubhouse that it was going to be able to take it to another level. And where the, the Braves, after a ball game, might have three or four riders in your locker, uh, good, bad, or indifferent, the Red Sox, Obviously, there were 15, 20 riders all vying for a story. And then they, you know, going head to head with the Yankees, the tradition of all that kind of stuff, the intensity of, of being in the big leagues dialed up significantly when I got there. And again, not really lucky. I, I hurt my left knee and tried to pitch um, through it in that first season in 75. And I, Without pulling any punches, I kind of stunk the place up for that whole year. Uh, had my surgery in the offseason. Uh, did semi-okay in 76. And then I, I think I was traded in August of, or maybe July of 77 to the Seattle Mariners. Yeah, the Mariners, an expansion team at the time. So as you said, you went from the, the Braves to a team that got notoriety and won in the, the Red Sox then to an expansion team. Now it's back in your, your, you know, where you were born in Seattle, but the transition there going from the Red Sox to an expansion program, was that a difficult one? Well, again, it was high and low for me. You went from um, medium profile in Atlanta to high profile in Boston to nobody really cared in Seattle. In, in those days, Seattle was, Travel was horrible. I mean, it's still bad now, but the travel was significantly different. The stadium up there was odd. Um, now, I, I actually enjoyed it because I still had relatives up there and was familiar with Seattle as a place to live. But the baseball was uh, significantly less competitive than it was in Boston. I think we lost uh, the, the two and a half years I was with Seattle, I think we lost close to 100, if not more than 100 games every year. So uh, highs and lows, obviously. Still love the game. Still went to the ballpark every day, excited about being in the big leagues. 
But when I got released in 79, I had to make a decision. I, you know, I had my degrees, I had an MBA, and I could have gone to work in the real world. But literally, I, I did not want to leave the game. Uh, so I took a job as a um, rookie ball pitching coach with the Houston Astros and started my career um, late 79 in the beginning of 1980 as a coach. Did you have your PhD in psychology at that point? No, I didn't. I, again, I went to school. I think I got my PhD in 86 or 87. But I, you know, kept chugging away. I got my MBA and then I got a, a master's in exercise physiology and um, a, a bachelor of science in nutrition from Loma Linda University. In other words, I just kept going to school to make my mom happy. Um, and I'll do a sidebar real quick. On her deathbed, the, the last question my mom asked me before she passed away, she said, now, Thomas, when are you going to get a real job? <laughs> she, she never understood uh, how, you know, sports could pay the bills. And I think she was more proud of writing uh, Dr. Tom House than saying that I was, a, you know, a pitcher or a coach in the big league. How did being Dr. Tom House, how did that help you in dealing with pitchers and, and athletes that, that you dealt with early on and even now? Well, uh, I'm, I'm sure you're aware because you know sports. Coaches pretty much are on on the spot uh, on the field. Sports psychologists, you know, you've got you got to be a, a father figure, a mother figure. You've got to be able to counsel them through not just how to throw a strike, but how to deal with success and failure. And baseball is a game of failure. You're going to feel bad more than you feel good. Pitchers, Hall of Fame pitchers, fail half the time. Hall of Fame hitters fail seventy percent of the time. So you're, you're going to have to figure out how to, how to keep a guy on, on an up rather than a down when it comes to moods and co competition. And I, I hit the crease perfectly between old school and new school, where old school, you, you had to have a huge experience as a coach to have any credibility trying to teach someone something. So what I got involved with was three-dimensional emotion analysis, the, the science that we're experiencing now just got started in the 80s. And we took, uh, I, I know I was the first um, coach in baseball to purchase the motion analysis system. And actually, we, I was with the Texas Rangers at the time. We actually captured data and got almost 600 major league pitchers in the computer at 1,000 frames a second. And that was the basis of the modeling for all the motion analysis that you're seeing on TV and um, spin rates and mechanical efficiency and stride length, release point, uh, all that kind of stuff was the beginning. It started in the mid-1980s, and we were one of the first people to do it. Yeah, you were certainly on the forefront of that. As you said, 85, you're the pitching coach for the Rangers. Uh, Bobby Ballantyne, who was one of our previous guests here, was the, the manager. Did you guys have a tie going back to USC? Did you guys play together or just have a connection there? You have really, really done your homework. I'm, I'm impressed. I'll give you a little gallery clap here. No, I, I met Bobby when he was coming. He was going to play football at yeah. USC before he signed with the Dodgers. And uh, I, was, I took him around on his visit. 
uh, to where I showed him, you know, what fraternities, et cetera, and where the girls were and uh, what the ballpark was like. And so I got to know him then. And, you know, that's one of those things in life where uh, degrees of separation, whatever it might be, or the Venn diagram, as luck would have it 10 years later, he is now the, the manager of the Texas Rangers. And he and our general manager, Tom Reeve, um, allowed me to pull all this crazy new science into the Ranger organization. And if it hadn't been for them, uh, we would have never been able to do 3D capture there. We wouldn't have had a weight room. Um, they were young, they were hungry, and they were looking to make a difference any way they could with the Rangers. And because of their support, um, I think that set us apart from everybody else. Another Forrest Gump moment for you. Yeah, so they, exactly. were young, they were young, but there was one old guy on the pitching staff that was pretty good, and he gives you a lot of credit for helping him end his career the way he did, and that's Nolan Ryan. Yeah, and now remember, Nolan would have been a Hall of Famer even if he hadn't ever come to the Rangers. And as luck would have it, we had another old guy. People don't realize it. Charlie Huff mm -hmm. was on that staff too. So we had two old guys. <laughs> and basically a double-A pitching staff is what it brought down to. And we, we, for all intent and purposes, tried everything new we could possibly do because we knew what wasn't working, and that was the old way. And I think Nolan's numbers kind of speak for its, itself. Uh, Charlie also pitched till he was 47, 48. Um, Jamie Moyer pitched into his late 40s. All that crazy stuff we were doing then, everybody was kind of smiling or laughing about or making fun of us behind our backs, throwing footballs and lifting weights and paying attention to nutrition and looking at the metrics that are now called analytics and all that stuff was kind of, they were poking fun at us, but it turned out to be the beginning of something special. And it was some special times as well for Nolan Ryan. I just had a chance to watch the documentary Facing Nolan. I mean, the time that you were there as his pitching coach, what, he eclipsed 5,000 strikeouts, right? 300 wins and had a couple no-hitters. So, I mean, you saw some of the best that Nolan Ryan had at the end of his career as his pitching coach. What was it like to see him have that success and, and know that you had a part in that? Well, what was interesting, you know, it's always nice to get validation from a superstar. But when a superstar is willing to look at something different, something new um, than what he was already doing and take it on and try it to see what happened, uh, I, I think, and I, the numbers prove it, Nolan was a better pitcher from age 39 to 47 than he was at any other time in his career. And the, the beauty of that was he was willing to try new things and, and everybody talked, everybody knows he was a superstar and a hard thrower and work and, you know, it, everything about him was, was super. But his, probably his biggest gift was his ability to say, okay, I'll try it. It makes sense. Now, he didn't do everything we suggested, but some of the new stuff that uh, the younger kids were embracing, he said, I'll, I'll give it a try. Throwing the football was one of them, lifting a little bit different, uh, nutrition. Um, the way we conditioned uh, for functional strength rather than absolute strength. He bought in with all of it. And I, I think the, 
those new processes, the results, uh, the outcomes actually speak for themselves. Yeah, so you've got to have the knowledge, you've got to have the want to, but you've got to have the, the players to accept it. I mean, in the, yes. the, the, the mid-1980s, were, were, there, were there some players, some pitchers that said, I'm not doing that. I, I, I'm not going to listen to you. I'm going to do what I can have done all my career. The, yeah, there were some, you know, we had the uh, Goose Gossage was one of the guys that came in and he said, hey, because hey, I'd known Goose from the San Diego Padre days. And he said, Tom, you know, I, I love you, but I, I, I'm not going to do some of that stuff. I said, okay, it's, you know, it's your call. But what, what we found when, when Nolan bought in and some of our kids started getting better and staying healthy and, you know, less time on the disabled list and we started putting numbers up, what was crazy at the beginning started becoming more acceptable. And now when I look around, I, I honestly think, that the game of baseball is the healthiest it's ever been, even though it's played a little bit differently now than when I first got in the game. I think as far as the player health, safety, and performance, their preparation and their recovery is better than it's ever been. Yeah, I can certainly see that technology and just, just knowledge of your body and of the, the sport has, has helped that. I've got to ask you, you know, our, our wish list guest, my wish list guest is George Bush to talk baseball. I know he was the owner of the, the Rangers during that time. Did you have much interaction with him? I know Bobby Valentine and him met almost on a, on a daily basis. Yeah, he was a very, you know, hands-on owner. Uh, he was a runner, and, and I'm a runner. So we actually did a lot of running around the stadium there. Spring training, we'd run or ride bikes. So I got to know him pretty well. Um, he, he, as an owner, was asked a lot of good questions and was involved in the processes. Now, I don't know about the higher up decisions. That was Bobby and Tom Grieve. But as far as dealing with me and what we were doing, um, he had a, a, a basic understanding of everything we were trying to do and was very supportive. You stayed on the, the Major League Baseball level as a coach for a while, the Astros, Padres. You also went to Japan with, with Bobby Valentine as right. well. Was it uh, Would you have gone if it was somebody else? Probably not. And Bobby said, you got to come over here because they, they do some things way different than we do. I think we can learn from them. And I don't know if uh, you realize, but Bobby was the first guy, Gene, the first foreign manager to win a Japanese World Series. And Bobby is dynamic. He's an extremely bright baseball mind. And his motivation and his passion for the game uh, have has had a large impact on me. So if if Bobby were to call right now and say, let's go to the Zimbabwe to work with pitchers, I'd follow him wherever he was going. 1998, you get a Lifetime Achievement Award from American Baseball Coaches Association. I mean, again, this is still pretty early on in your career, but a Lifetime Achievement in 1998, what, what does something like that mean to you? Well, it's valid, validation for the commitment you have. You know, I've been really lucky. I, I've had ups and I've had downs, and I'm not saying that the path was easy all the way. But when I look back and where I was and where I am right now, and I, I think we're right in the middle of even better stuff right now, uh, to get recognition from a, uh, an association like the uh, ABCA, is, uh, it makes you feel kind of good. 
makes up for the two years I was in Boston where I didn't hear my last name, where I was now pitching for the Sox, number 29, Tom Poo. Uh, <laughs> you know, those, those days when you're at the bottom looking up um, and, you know, when you kind of look back, it's, it's what I'm doing. I'm reflecting as, as I'm getting older. Uh, I, I've been pretty blessed, pretty lucky. And uh, the fact that I'm here talking to you and you actually have gone to the nosebleed of looking through my career. Remember, Don, Don Zimmer had the perfect scouting report on me. He said I was marginal to horseshit, but, <laughs> but consistently and predictably marginal to horseshit. So just go figure. And here we are talking like I actually know what I'm supposed to do. Well, you, you have a great story, whether you're horseshit or not. You, really have, you have a great story here. Yeah, see, there's another thing. I don't even know if that word is politically correct right now, but in the strange world we live in. But the pure thing about sports, it, uh, if, if you're a fan or a participant in sports, it, everybody gets along. The, the affiliation and the empathy and all the good things that sports and the power of play bring are one of the reasons I still get up every morning and go work with kids. Yeah, sports uh, sports are great. Again, it does so many things for you, obviously. Um, for, for you, you continued on pitching career as a, as a coach, and you went to your alma mater back in uh, at USC 2008 to 2011. What was that experience like for you to, to get a chance to go back where things kind of all started for you? Well, uh, again, it always goes full circle. What I did was uh, I agreed to go be Chad Cruder's pitching coach, but the sidebar on that, the, the main reason I went up is USC allowed me to set up some research facilities there. It was actually, we called it the Rod Dato Research and Baseball Institute. Nice. So I, I was up there for 10 years and I was actually their pitching coach for five of those years. But during the 10, 10 years, we furthered the research on motion analysis. We got into the mental emotional stuff. We got into testing, recovery. Uh, I think we did 22 research projects. We were published in scientific journals, wrote a couple of books while I was up there. That was, for me, that kind of separated what would a normal pitching coach would be and took it to another level. Uh, we were, I, I think for the 10 years I was up there, we were probably the best research facility on rotational athletes. And it kind of led us to the velocity program that everybody's using now that is, I, I know is a direct influence. The average velocity, average fastball in the big leagues when I signed was 86 to 88. The, the really hard throwers were 91 to 92. Now, the, the average fastball is 93, 94, and people are, you know, got four guys in every staff throwing 100. Yeah. That, re that research started up at USC. Um, it also led to a company we have right now called Mustard, where we've taken all the elite information that the big boys get and made it user-friendly for a mom and a dad who have a cell phone and just want to film their son or their daughter in the backyard swinging a bat or throwing a softball or a baseball. So, uh, again, lucky me, I had my big league career, went back and got to coach on the collegiate level and do research there. 
So you go from the eighties guy like Goose Gossage that doesn't want to necessarily buy into what you're you're doing to now you're being sought after, right? That you know, as you said, the, the mustard app and different things you're doing, all that research. I mean, you're you're a sought after guy right now. Yeah, and it, it's funny how it works. I'm 75, I've got Parkinson's, and I'm I'm looking to slow down, maybe even retire. It's not gonna happen. Because the harder I try to slow down and retire, the, the more people are tapping on the door. But it's, it's, it's a good thing. And I think the, the people that I'm surrounded by right now are all young and smart and hungry. And hopefully they'll, they'll learn from my experience and the things that have worked. And by standing on my shoulders or the shoulders of the people that I'm with right now, um, five, six years from now, the whole, both, you know, everything should be better. And I think, I don't know if you were going to talk about football at all, but the fact that we threw footballs as pitchers kind of got me involved with professional football and uh, through a guy named Drew Brees. And right now we, um, myself or RD up, uh, up at uh, the, uh, Adam Dado, and it's 3D QB. There, I got it out. I was getting a little confused there. 3D QB is now an offshoot of everything that uh, Rod Dado's grandson, Adam Dado, now runs 3D QB. And we're, we actually are dealing with 28 of the 32 uh, number one QBs in the NFL right now. So it's funny how things grow. Yeah, that's crazy. You mentioned Drew Brees, Tom Brady, Dak Prescott, all of them. You name them. Like I said, you're, you're involved with them. But it, you said it started with Drew Brees. Was he the first one to come to you and, and, and try to get better? Um, yes. How it worked when we were capturing data, I, I had no clue what motion analysis could ever be. So anybody that would agree to go through a capture. So we had Marino and uh, – trying to think, Burline, Montana. We had seven or eight quarterbacks in the computer throwing a football, and I didn't know what I was looking at. We no, Nobody did. But as I got further and further into the data capture, um, the offensive coordinator for, the, for the, uh, the San Diego Chargers at that time, Cam Cameron, came to me and said, hey, look, I've got a young quarterback. I'd like you to meet and talk to. Uh, I, I think he needs a little mental emotional boost, uh, presence in the locker room, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I met him because of Cam and got to know him really well and good, bad, or indifferent. The season that he was going to uh, be a free agent and was hoping to sign back with the Chargers. He had a blowout in his shoulder. He got crunched and uh, had the surgery from Dr. Andrews. And Dr. Andrews called me after the surgery and said, okay, I put him back together, but I don't think he's ever going to throw a football again. Wow. And eight, eight months later, he was throwing footballs for the New Orleans Saints. So he was a neighbor of mine here in Del Mar in San Diego. And pretty much after his surgery, we worked every day um, for about four months to get his arm back and all the, the weird stuff you see on TV, the, the Dak dance and all that. Yeah, kind of yeah. Stuff. It was literally 
we we were we, we had to figure out a way for Drew to get back to throwing form without lifting heavy weights doing the traditional stuff because he couldn't. So all that body work and the functional strength training and the movement training and more nutrition and more therapy, uh, that's how we stumbled into that. So again, another Forrest Gump movement. We didn't know what we were doing, but it turned out really well. And then with Drew's success, that quarterback fraternity is pretty small. And uh, all of a sudden, other guys are showing up. Uh, Alex Smith at that time, uh, Tom Brady. Um, we were working with all of them in a group up at USC. So it, it turned out really good. Yeah, they all want to know what the, what's the, in the secret sauce, I'm sure. But what you yes. did with Drew Brees is probably going to be a Hall of Fame career. And, and you're saying you're responsible for that, that twisting that, that Dak Prescott does that everyone well, kind of you know, on social media all the time? Re remember, um, when you say I'm responsible, I'll get blamed. I'm responsible. <laughs> good or bad, it all started. And it wouldn't have happened except Drew, Drew and I, we, we, we collaborated. Well, we, we can't lift weights, but what would happen if we held a weight isometrically and just moved the body around? Because you can't hurt yourself in a joint if you're not moving the weight, but stabilizing and, and holding a weight in a position that will build endurance. So we came up with a whole different way to condition a thrower, um, whether it's a baseball or a, a football or whatever it might be. And that functional strength training and the preparation to do that, the body work that you see, um, all, it pretty much started with Drew and me in an aerobics room at Pacific Fitness here in Del Mar. That's crazy. That's incredible. Uh, again, you've worked with so many pitchers. You've worked with so many quarterbacks as well. Is there one that you say is the best thrower, maybe not best athlete, best whatever, but best thrower, the best mechanics that you saw? Well, that's, that's tough because especially in today's game, there's so many kids with the, the talent is unbelievable. But I would have to say that the best arm I've ever worked with was a kid named Kevin Brown. Um, I'd, I'd never seen anybody with his arm speed, arm strength, and action on the ball. Um, probably Greg Maddox was the most efficient mechanical delivery we had. Nolan Ryan with the hard throwers had the best mechanics. Probably the most effective, effectively wild pitcher was Randy Johnson. I think one of the reasons Randy was so good, not only did he you know, throw 100 miles an hour with a 92 mile an hour slider. He was just wild enough to, uh, well, the, the numbers show up. Nolan Ryan was the hardest man to get a hit off of in the history of the game. And right behind him was Randy Johnson. So I would go that way. Probably the, the, the best pitcher for mechanics would be Maddox. The best hard thrower would be Nolan and the most effective hard thrower would be Randy Johnson. Incredible. Again, uh, some of the guys that you have been involved with and, and, you know, Hall of Fame guys you're talking about here. I think you're you're on the path to a Hall of Fame career, I think, as a coach. As, uh, you know, it, it may be difficult to decide baseball or football because of the impact you've had. You, you As you said, you're 75 now. You're getting older. You're, you're looking back a little bit. Do, do you ever stop to realize the impact you've had on some of the biggest names in these two sports? Not, not really. You know, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I got six kids on a field out. You know, that's 
That's why I was a little late for our get-together this morning. Uh, we were in the weight room, and I was sending them back out to the field when my wife called and said, you got to get home. we got a, got a, a thing to do on the, on the computer. So uh, the athlete that's in front of me right now is the one that gets my attention. And even the kids that don't get to the big leagues, if they've got, if they got their college education or they go on to be successful in something else, um, I'm as proud of them as I am of someone that probably would have been in the Hall of Fame even without me. Um, if it makes any sense, the, the, I feel like anytime I'm in front of someone that is trying to be informed, instructor, inspired, if I give everything I've got and they give everything they've got, then we both walk away with a collaborative effort that will make both of us better. Well, I can see and, and hear some of your mom coming out with that comment uh, as well about them getting better and, and, and certainly uh, uh, becoming better people as well. Uh, another uh, you know, Forrest Gump moment for you. Let's go back to 2008. You're a consultant on a re reality program called The Million Dollar Arm. Take us through that, how this transpired. They came to you with this idea and, and, and what you thought. Well, it was, it was interesting. They, it was a reality show in India. And the guy, the, the agent slash lawyer that put it together, um, they'd found four kids that could throw low 90s. The original, if they had found anybody that threw 95 plus, it was worth a million bucks. But they found four kids, two of which were travel friendly, that were throwing 91, 92. And the... Uh, he came to me and said, would you take on preparation, see if we get these guys to throw 94, 95, maybe get signed with a pro team. So um, I said, okay, well, we'll take a shot at it if you'll allow me to do it my way. We, I, I want to make sure that they're functionally strong and mechanically sound before we even think about trying to have them throw 95 or 100 miles an hour. So J.B. Bernstein said, okay, you got a deal. And we took on these two kids that had never thrown a baseball. The first day they played catch-up at USC, they thought the glove was to keep your throwing hand warm. <laughs> um, they, they, in other words, it was just first time with everything. And they went from complete motor morons when it came to throwing anything to uh, six months later, they signed with the Pittsburgh Pirates. And the movie, uh, it does a really good job kind of showing what Rinko and Dinesh went through and their interpreter. So I would encourage it, it, that you mentioned two movies that you need to see. The Million Dollar Arm would be one of them. And then uh, Facing Nolan would be the other. And there's a testimonial on both sides to some kids that had never thrown a baseball and how far they got with contemporary information and instruction. And then one of the best in the history of the game, Nolan, taking advantage of the same thing to do it longer and more effectively. And both those movies are a reflection of not only the quality of the athlete, but the quality of the information that was being delivered to them. The late Bill Paxton played you in the movie, The Million Dollar Arm. Uh, were you on set at all? Were you involved with the actual movie at all? It was a, it was a Disney movie, like every good sports story is. 
Yeah, you boy, you've really done your homework here. My wife says Bill Paxson did a better Tom House than Tom House did. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, he came and spent about a month with us uh, watching what we do and picking up mannerisms. And then most of the filming was in Atlanta. Uh, and I was fortunate enough to go back and watch it. And, you know, I had, uh, if I saw something I didn't like, they would change or edit accordingly. But um, Bill, Bill did an awesome job being me. And obviously the two kids that played Rinko and Dinesh and the interpreter Dipesh, um, the casting was dead on. And it was a great story because it was a, not only a success story, it was a, a family. It, it shows uh, how important moms are to the equation. Uh, and it, right now, Dinesh is the best pitching coach in Mumbai. Uh, he's the only pitching coach in Mumbai, but he carried it, and they're still doing baseball over there. And Rinku, the left-hander, is actually... Um, in the MMA, he went from baseball to, uh, yeah, he gained about 20 pounds and is a tough guy in the MMA right now. Well, you mentioned the coaching. What does your coaching tree look like? Because obviously, again, you've coached a long time. You coach a lot of pitchers. You have all these different things that you were doing at the forefront of. Do you, do you have a lot of guys that are out there coaching and, and really disseminating your message throughout the, the country? Yes, uh, it, you know, and thank you for bringing it up. Um, we, and it's not just me, it's the group that has done research and, you know, tried to make the game better and healthier. Uh, we probably have influence in every organization with a pitching coach or two or a conditioning coach or two. And the same in football with quarterback coaches and strength trainers on the collegiate and the NFL level. So, again, I'm 75, and the last 50 years has been interaction uh, almost on a daily basis, bringing the best science as possible to combine with experience and putting it out there. Probably the, the kid that um, makes the most sense would be young Mark Pryor, mm -hmm. who I've known since he was in uh, junior high that ended up having a, 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 a brief here in the big leagues because he got injured with his shoulder but is now the pitching coach with the Dodgers and that that generation of kids were the first ones that got to the big leagues under my tutelage and now they're all out there um, doing what I was trying to do in the in the 70s and 80s. Yeah, I'm, I'm a Dodgers fan, so I can relate to that. Mark Pryor doing a great job with that pitching staff that didn't have Walker Buehler this year, has had Kershaw in and out of that lineup, uh, certainly a, an interesting staff, and took over for a very good pitching coach in Rick uh, Honeycutt as well. Mm -hmm. uh, again, as you said, you're 75, you're dealing with Parkinson's, unfortunately, but you're out there still coaching every day. What kind of keeps you going out there and, and staying active? Well, <clears throat> I think it's what's helping me. They told me when I was first diagnosed that I'd probably be in a wheelchair watching TV by the time I was 75. Wow. But uh, I ran into this guy named Kirk Gibson, who also has Parkinson's. And we put our heads together and we you know, screw it. We're not going to give in. Let's see if we can make a difference. So we're actually finishing up a documentary about Parkinson's. And you don't die from Parkinson's. You die with it. 
And our model with Kirk's and my model have been don't do nothing. Uh, so every day, even though it feels like I'm running a marathon to get up to brush my teeth, we get it started. And I honestly believe that that's one of the reasons that we're pushing back with Kirk doing the same thing. Kirk is actually still announcing for the yeah, Tigers. Yeah. And obviously when this documentary comes out, there's testimonials and information and science that we hope will help everybody. But to answer your, your questions, um, I, I think what I'm doing right now is just as exciting and motivating as it was 25 years ago. But even more so, I'm mixing old age and treachery or wisdom, as you want to call it, and making a difference even at my age. Yeah, you mentioned Kirk Gibson. There's a, another famous Los Angeles Dodger, the big home run that he had. So, so when is that documentary coming out? How can people watch that and learn more about you know what you guys are doing collectively? I'll tell you what. If you just, uh, um, I know that the producer and director wants were. I talked to him three days ago, and it looks like we're going to do something in Boston right after the right after the first of the year. Um, but I, I'm not at liberty to say what it is yet. But I, I do know it's been the the documentary has been picked up, and it will be on one of the delivery mechanisms out there, whether it's Showtime or um, whatever they might be. And the delivery time should be first. Uh, first of the year, January, February. Part of this is it trying to just raise awareness, or you're trying to raise some funds, help out some different groups that are that are battling this disease. All of the above, and it's just it's it's kind of like the, the Parkinson's version of the million dollar arm. We're, we're doing things that have never been done before because nobody was willing to take a shot. Wow. And everybody remembers Kirk Gibson and what you know just a huge competitor, grizzly bear, rah, rah, rah. Well, he's a big teddy bear. And watching him and how much he cares and is, is trying to help the Parkinson's community is another reason I stay motivated. So again, I get to pal around with another superstar. And the common denominator is informing, instructing, and inspiring, trying to help people get better. Well, on the forefront, again, of analytics, so the pitching mechanics, maybe you're on the forefront of, of maybe curing this dreaded disease as well and, and certainly hope for and, and, and wish you the best when, in, in that part of things. And uh, again, how can people follow you? Tell us about your website. There's a lot of information on there and the Mustard app as well tied to that. How can they kind of get more? You know, my son's a baseball player and, and you know, trying to get him better as well. How can folks that, that want to do that find more out about you and what you're doing? Thank you so much for letting me set this up. If you want to do the mustard side of the equation, and, and again, what mustard is, it, we've democratized what the elite are, are paying huge dollars for and put it all on a cell phone. If you want to team mustard, and it's T-E-A-M-M-S-T-R-D.com, team mustard will bring up to speed on everything not only on baseball, but we've added a, a football a, a, a throwing app for quarterbacks, and it's free. It's something you can come on and get the same efficacy in a movement analysis and the drills to fix that the elite guys get, and it's all free. 
if you go to nationalpitching.com, you'll get the baseball side of the equation. And I'm so extremely proud of all of it, the, the people that are involved with us. Uh, I won't mention any one particular name, but they're all superstars. Uh, you, you won't believe how much they are behind trying to help the, the youth of the world. A real quick fact, right, right now, 80% of the kids that play sports stop playing sports by age 14, male and female. And what we're trying to do, if we can just get these young people to stay with sports, the, the power of play and competing is so important in this crazy world we're living in right now. So between nationalpitching.com and Team Mustard, there's some really good stuff on there. What are you finding leads to kids giving it up? I mean, I know it gets, you know, my son's 12 and it's starting to get a little bit more serious now. If he wants to get better, he's got to compete more. He's got to practice some more. Uh, what turns him away from age 12 to 14? What are you finding out? Well, they don't have fun, number one. They get hurt, number two. And they, they don't understand the value of playing and failing. We, kids, we live in an outcome world, but you can't control your outcome. You can only control your process. And the value of sports, everybody knows the physical value. You know, being active and, and whatever is so much better for health and well-being. But the mental-emotional approach, the empathy of watching a teammate have a bad day and you feel for him or be excited because he or she had a great day. Persistence and dealing, dealing with, you know, you're not the best in the field, the adversity of failing and learning from it. All those lessons that uh, are kind of glossed over in, in searching for outcome are actually enforced and taught functionally with the apps and the websites that we're putting out there. So we call it fail fast forward. You'll learn more from your screw ups than you do your successes. You just have to make sure that uh, as you move forward, you're, you're looking for a process to make yourself better. And if we can just keep, keep kids competing through high school, then the, the data, the numbers that, that show up on that, they're better health, better human beings in a group, and more likely to succeed in whatever field they're in if they play sports through high school. Well, again, everybody knows the names, Nolan Ryan, Randy Johnson, you mentioned them, uh, you know, Tom Brady, Drew Brees. I'm glad you joined us so people know Tom House. I know a lot of people do, obviously, around baseball and football, but uh, you're kind of the man behind all these guys and, and done some great work and continue to do that as well. And I can't thank you enough for, for spending a little time with us here today and telling us your story and, and again those Forrest Gump moments there's so many of them in, in your life and in your career it's great well you do a very good job this was easy I'll hang out with you anytime so any anytime you need more just give me a shout okay all right sounds great and take care wish you the best of luck with the documentary and everything with the the Parkinson's that you're trying to do to, to help out that cause help out yourself as well thank you have a blessed day well, great stuff. You may not know the name. Hopefully you do now because you know some of the big names that he worked with. Again, Nolan Ryan, Randy Johnson, Tom Brady, Drew Brees, Dak Prescott, so many of those guys that he has had an influence on. And we are happy that he joined us here today. Thanks to Lindsey Waterhouse for setting that interview up for us as well. Some great stuff. And be sure to check him out 
his website and look for big things coming up in the new year with what he's trying to do with Kirk Gibson to help out on the Parkinson's front as well. We wish him the best with that. Again, we thank you for watching, for listening, and encourage you to subscribe. Don't miss out. 50 great guests, 50 more at least to come. Thanks for joining us in the front row with Mike Vaccaro. Have a great day, everybody.